Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Know that you are welcome. Pour a cooling drink, scoop a bowl of treat, and settle in with a chum or two. You are here for Tales to Terrify, of course. Why else would you press the button named Santoro Lawrence P. down in the street, hmm? I'm just making certain, because tonight in particular, I wouldn't want to begin spinning up one of the yarns of the night only to discover that, that you hadn't the nerve for such fare. And about tonight's offerings, I mean that. I will not dawdle. We have a lot of words to air out tonight, so let me dive right in. Now and then, I poke my nose out of the nook and go read in public, here, there, everywhere. Last month, I went to the south side of Chicago, to a nifty old neighborhood that was once the Maxwell Street Market, the history of which is worth a visit to the worldwide wiki web. The neighborhood is now somewhat gentrified and is part of the mise-en-scene of the University of Illinois at Chicago. A kind of uh, arts community thrives there, and each month the neighbors in the hood open their lofts and galleries to the public and display their various arts and wares. Writer Brendan Detzner lives there and operates a monthly reading series for authors of various stamps, which Brendan calls Bad Grammar Theater. Well, this is a long introduction to what is going to be a short poem. But last month I heard an old Tales to Terrify author, the very young Alexei Collier, read what he called at the time a bad poem. I liked it. Here it is, read not by Mr. Collier, but by myself. 
The Tamor, a poem of childhood. Two embers gaze out a black shimmering shadow, clothed in night, ribbed with invisible fire. He masses more than human fears and silhouettes the feline shape of a soul inside, out. He is like seeing no reflection, like star smoke. He stalks the darkness. He sees only the darkness. He hates the darkness. He loves the darkness. He devours the darkness. He guards your home from angels and their peace. Pads on city streets and starlight. Feeds on the dreams of of the dead, drinks, air, breathes, vacuum. He paces in desperately hollow hallways, whispers to you sweetly as you sleep, echoing unearthly silent syllables, prowling softly back and forth, back and forth. Come out into the light of midnight. Bring only your caged mind. Do not look back. The next step is your first. Obviously, that poem was called the Tamar, and he calls it a poem of childhood. And thank you for the use of that, Alex. Among other things, Alexei Collier is the author of Just Around the Corner, which is a creepy little H.G. Wellsian tale we cast back in episode 21, and which was published in Tales to Terrify, volume 1, the which you must buy, by the by. Anyway, I'll see you next month, Alex, yes? On to fiction. Our first tale tonight comes to us from Orion D. Hagri. Ori, as he is called, O.D., as he is published, mentions that he is an opera fan, especially of Italian opera, and particularly of the Verissimo period, the famed cav-pag pairing of Pagliacci and Cavalleria Rusticana. They are Verissimo, for example. So, too, is La Boheme, Tosca. All of these feature soaring melodies and stories of realism, truth, and, yes, darkness. No one who has heard Puccini's tenor aria, Che Galida Manina, what a cold little hand, will ever forget it. From that phrase and from the melody, he says, his unconscious writer's heart eventually figured something bad had to come from something so incredibly beautiful. Here is O.D. Higres. It's just tearing me all apart. And I do want to warn you, be careful in your listening. It is a grim tale. The strains of Puccini's La Boheme floated on the cold night air. From the porch's edge, two hundred yards of tree-lined driveway stretched to the main road, and then, nothing. For miles, not one other living soul. He didn't hunt them. He just waited for God to bring them to him. Frederick Molinari waited patiently to serve. <laughs> 
Each of them sung God's praises under Frederick's tutelage. Pain was an integral part of their training. Frederick pulled the collar of his jacket up against the wind. After all these years, he could still hear the old priest whispering in his ear, Suffering is the way to joy, the father had said. Those hours in the rectory served their purpose. In the end, the young choir boy became a very good pupil. It's the path to salvation, Frederick always told him. Frederick leaned up against the rail. He was again doing God's work, and he found it completely reasonable that in their agony he might achieve some pleasure while toiling in God's name. None of them ever disagreed. Pain, endure the pain and find the joy. The words of the cleric seemed carried on the wind, and Frederick's mind wandered into the more recent past, to another night of Puccini. For days, Frederick had felt God's calling and hadn't touched his meds. Puccini's melodies were magical, and with them he had learned to control the stifling effects of the medication, to the point where the maestro's music allowed him to retrieve a life, and with the music came the voices. Sono un poeta. Who am I? The music of the first act of Lobohim echoed through the house. The knock on the door had come as he scribbled in one of his journals. De Grazia, he heard. Please, can you help me? The voice asked. He opened the door. A young woman stood in the glare of the porch light. The snowflakes fell like a veil between them. Mimi, he thought. May I use your phone? My car's got a flat and my cell's not working out here. Me see spento illum, he heard. He brought a finger to his throat. Sure, you must be freezing, and he stepped aside. She galita manina, he heard. Man, that weather came up fast. Life abounds with surprises, Frederick thought as he closed her in from the outside world. No gloves. She blew on her reddened hands. He watched her eyes widen as he again moved his hand to his throat. Maybe a couple of inches tonight. He paused for a moment, trying to steady his nerves. They say we need more cell towers out here. Reception's always touch and go, they say. She stared at him. Throat cancer. He tapped his ostomy. Sorry, mister, didn't mean to. The phone is over here. Frederick walked to the credenza. I just can't thank you enough. I won't be long. It's not me you need to thank, he thought. Chison? She paced, the receiver glued to her ear, small, framed, not more than thirty, he figured. She bella bambina. She was beautiful, and her eyes. Du ladre. Those beautiful eyes. Gli occhi belli. The eyes. Sorry, mister, my friend isn't answering. I need to call for a tow and a cab. They do have cabs out here, don't they? Frederick could see the anxiety in her eyes, those eyes. She fussed in her purse. Can I borrow your phone book? I'll only be a few, then wait out in my car. The first act was finishing. Oh, so Ava, Fanciula filled his head. Rodolfo and me meet off together to Café Momus in love. Frederick plays it again in his mind. Lo ti amo, he says. Excuse me? She turns to look at him. I'm sorry, never mind. His hand shaking, affecting his voice. 
I'll make the call for you. It's too cold out there. You can wait in here till we see the lights of the cab. He hasn't seen a cab out here in five years. Can I get you something to drink while we wait, Mimi? He asks. What? Mimi? Who's Mimi? He's getting all confused now. They are at Momus, aren't they? Here to drink and have a good time? God, she is so beautiful, and maybe when they get back to his flat... Well, she had said wait and see. In his head, again, he hears, Curioso, curioso. He can't wait any longer. He reaches out. Hey, what the... Now you listen. He steps closer. Air sputters from his tracheostoma. It can't be helped. He needs both hands. Quivering, they grasp her blouse. Stop, stop, you fucking freak. What is that? There is terror in her voice. Clearly a mezzo. With his training, she should be able to hit the high A if enough pressure is applied. Oh, Jesus, no! It'll be beautiful, and he can feel a further stirring in his loins. Please, please, oh dear God, no, don't! It's a start. She will have more to say and sing to the Lord before it's over. But it's a good start, and he brings the hammer down along the side of her head. The wind pushed at him, drawing Frederick back from his reverie, but the late-night visitor dwelled in his memory. It had been a struggle, but with his help, she had, indeed, exceeded his vocal expectations. The unique tonal quality of her outbursts, the harmonic spectra of her extended shrieks and screams were so deeply sensual to his ear that he kept her for two days longer than any of his previous pupils. In the end, Frederick accepted the young woman's testament of faith, and then, begging to return to her maker, he had obliged. He looked up into the heavens. She was home, safe, and he had his memories, plus a bit more. For a moment, the strains of Sheikh Galida Manina clouded his mind, and his thoughts drifted to what lay safe in the back of his freezer. And, and he had the eyes, too. Drops of rain played on the porch roof. The temperature had fallen, sleet for sure, maybe snow, Frederick thought as he moved inside. The air burgeoned with the aroma of freshly brewing herbal tea. Frederick decided to replay the first act. He carefully placed the needle on the rotating disc. The Italian Ministry of Arts recorded the performance, his first and last appearance at La Scala, six months before test revealed the cancer. The record was his only copy. A fire, years before, destroyed his collection. That made it so special. Frederick sipped the tea. He just couldn't get Catherine Wallace out of his mind. She was special, as well, and he knew why. Not because she found God during her tribulation. There were so many others. And not because he'd taken tokens to her testimony. His freezer overflowed. She had given more... Take this in remembrance of me. She was a part of him, literally. When he tried, he was sure he could feel her in his bones, his fingers, his toes. The strains of Puccini's La Boheme again filled the room. It's the first act when Mimi knocks on the door of Rodolfo's garret. A bell rings. He sits up. Again, the dissonance of the doorbell clashes with the music. What the... Frederick makes his way to the entertainment center and turns down the volume. Knocking replaces the bell. He moves cautiously towards the door. The bell rings again. He draws the curtain aside. 
ever so slightly. A woman. A bead of sweat trails down his back. Apprehension accompanied by fear? Joy? Mimi? Foolishness. No way. Yet a young woman? A gift on a cold, wintry night? Praise the Lord. He opens the door. A rush of cold air pushes him back. Regaining his balance, Frederick squints in the bright light of the porch lamp. She stands there. He is looking into those eyes again, and his knees buckle slightly. Frederick holds his hand to his throat and opens his mouth. Mimi? Then the world explodes. Frederick's brain pounded behind his eyes. The lids felt like sandpaper scraping across his corneas as he raised them. Someone stood before him. He wanted to rub the grit from his eyes, but he couldn't move his hands. Either of them, then Frederick felt wetness on his forehead, fluid sliding down his face. He stuck out his tongue. Water, thank the Lord. His mouth felt so dry, his cheeks clung to his teeth. That's quite a little instrument you have, Mr. Molinari. Quick now, there's more coming. His tongue moved right, then left. The coolness of the water brought more relief. She knew his name. How? His vision cleared and he could see her now. It was Mimi. It was. There it is again, my friend. The wetness left his forehead. Water rained down on his bare chest as she twisted the wet towel over him. The dead giveaway. I knew you were the one when you opened the door. The look on your face, like you were seeing someone from the grave. Laughing, she pulled up a chair in front of him. No, you're not seeing dead people, you miserable piece of shit. Twins were identical twins, you fuck. The woman looked away for a moment, then turned back. Twins until you took her from me. He could see tears. It had to be true. She had Mimi's eyes, and his thoughts flashed to his back room. He had Mimi's eyes, too, and for a moment he couldn't help smiling. He wanted to speak, but... He looked down at the straps that bound his hands and feet to the recliner. A plastic tube ran down his forearm, taped at his elbow and again at his wrist. He knew an intravenous line when he saw one, all those months of chemo. You want to have a little conversation? You have a voice prosthesis, right? He nodded. No problem. And she moved closer to him, placing her finger over his tracheostoma. For a moment, he hesitated. What to say? Sorry, to start. Then, an explanation? No, uh, denial. Of course, deny everything. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're in my house. Frederick's chest heaved as he drew in more air. I don't know who, more air, this twin you're talking about. Maintain a calm demeanor, he told himself. Take whatever you want. I won't call the police. Just leave me alone. Please. He drew out the last word. It really sounded quite pitiful, he thought. The woman leaned back in her chair, shaking her head. I had a look around while you napped. You fashion yourself as some sort of dark angel of God, and here you are, lying through that sucking hole in your scrawny neck. Her body came crashing forward. That's Catherine's car out back, near the lake. Bet if I had found you in the spring, her old Malibu would rest at the bottom of the marsh with God knows what else. The woman leaned back, rotating her head about her shoulders. He could hear the vertebrae of her neck cracking. 
It took a week before I remembered. Catherine made that call. I couldn't take it. But that night she had my old iPhone. Suddenly the woman shoved something shiny and black up into his face. I found it in her car. Probably couldn't get service out here with all the weather that night she went missing. She ended up at your house to make that call, I figure. More bad luck for my girl. Did you know that all cell phones have GPS tracking capability? He watched as she scanned the room. Probably not. Phonograph, landline phone and all. Looks like you're still stuck in the 20th century, Frederick. She raised her lips, showing her teeth as she drew out his name. I have special software downloaded to my phone. If it's on, I can track it. These babies send out pings. ISPs keep records of those pings. My little phone kept crying out because Catherine left it plugged in. When the weather got better, reception improved. My phone kept on pinging till the car battery gave out. The provider identified the general area based on the location of the nearest cell tower. I picked it up from there. It took me a while to find you. You never noticed the phone, did you? The woman waved the little black box again. You wouldn't have recognized it anyway, would you, Frederick? That's the trouble living in the past, my friend. You get stupid real fast. Of course, Catherine wasn't the brightest light in the room either, leaving her phone charger plugged in. But that little mistake has brought us together. The woman leaned forward, waving an open book in his face. I found all your journals, Frederick. This one contains Catherine's tribulation, as you phrase it, and I quote, She was more receptive than most, quickly developing proper breath support, prolongation of the vowels, and shaping of the throat. She produced the extra frequencies above 3,000 hertz that are so satisfying to my ear. Her outbursts of anguish transformed themselves into melodies. The successive screams and shrieks became the music that allowed my deepest sexual urges to manifest. Her blue eyes burned into his. You are really one fucked up bastard. Frederick tried to speak, but air just escaped through his stoma. He wanted to explain to the woman how he helped Catherine find her God, how the woman needed to remember. It was God that brought Catherine out here, out here to him. I know you have things to say, and you will get your chance. But I already have a pretty good idea about you, Mr. Molinari. Like I said, I had a look around. Risperdone, carbamazepine, eripiprazole, I'm guessing, schizophrenia. Not much of a guess, really. Most of your kind aren't prone to violence. Obviously, you are an exception to the rule. There are always exceptions, aren't there, Frederick? We all think we are exceptional, when in reality, we are just exceptions. He watched as she fiddled with the plastic bags that hung on the rack above his head. This is going to take a while, but don't worry. You won't miss a thing. I have a stimulant for when you lose consciousness. I want you to remember our experience together, Frederick. I just added a hyperalgesic agent to your saline drip. It's a nociceptor agonist. Sorry, a lot of gobbledygook. It makes your nervous system more sensitive. You'll appreciate its effects a little later. Frederick waited. He didn't feel anything different. Just bullshit, he thought. A famous tenor, at least by your collection of memorabilia. Never heard of you, myself, but then I'm not into that highbrow stuff. Neither was Catherine. We're country gals. Yahoo! He jumped. The bindings on his wrists and ankles cut into his skin, bringing tears to his eyes. What did she say again? A hyperiologist or something? 
Your langerial cancer cut the opera act short. Too bad. So sad. She paused for a moment. Her smile broadened. Or should I say, too bad. So dissad. She was laughing now. But it definitely seems you found yourself another gig, Frederick. She leaned over and slapped his bare knee. My dear Frederick, I think I'm going to call you Marquis from now on. It seems so appropriate. Monsieur Marquis Molinari de Sade. She tilted her head towards the entertainment center. I appreciate your passion for opera. The first act of La Boheme was again ending. The strains of the marching band pounded in his head. It makes your nervous system more sensitive. But that's the past, Marquis, and like I said, I'm a country girl. You don't mind, do you? Suddenly, the woman disappeared. From the other side of the room, the screech of the needle etching its way across his prized possession made his ears burn. Oops, sorry. He could hear the scanner picking up station after station. A bit of rock, a bit of Latin, a bit of news, a bit... Perfect. Some god-awful twanging shit-kicker, groaning on about his green tractor. At that moment, Frederick felt sure she couldn't cause him more pain. They say a woman's capacity to orgasm is unlimited. She had returned. The non-sequitur had him totally confused. What the hell was she talking about? Personally, my record stands at four. Catherine was no starry-eyed new girl. She knew her way around a... Well, let's just say she knew her way. But then, I didn't have you, did I? I know we'll be setting a new record tonight. Yeehaw! Frederick could only shake his head. By the way, my name is Tissaphone. It's Greek. Catherine said it was geek, so she called me Tissy. I'm a psychiatric nurse at the state hospital. That's why I carry the taser. Got to be ready with that crowd... It's where they will take you once I've finished here. You can bet on that. Frederick watched as the woman began to unbutton her blouse. I've worked down there at the regional treatment center for 15 years. Do I look that old? 40? Do I really look that old, my dear Marquis? The woman had moved to the mirror over the bureau. She was running her fingers through her hair. Her blouse lay on the floor along with her jeans. Frederick shook her head in disbelief. Mimi was just 27. He had Catherine's wallet somewhere. This Tissy looks uncannily like Mimi, but it couldn't be her. He tried to clear his head. The Wallace woman, tender bits sautéed in herb-garlic butter sauce. The thing with its back to him couldn't be Mimi's twin either, unless she was lying about her age. But what woman ever adds years to their age? Crazy, just crazy. It wears off on you after a while. The woman rambled on, pacing back and forth. Nobody's perfect, you know. And when you're exposed to the extravagances of the mind, well, some of that just finds its way into the little cracks, and before you know it, a lock has been jimmied and a door opened. Down to her brawn panties, T.C. rummaged in her purse. She pulled out something purple with a cord extending from it. Frederick recognized it as some sort of electronic gear. A bright silver object about the size of an egg dangled at the cord's end. A buzzing broke the silence and the silver egg began to dance in the air. Then it stopped. 
The buzzing began again, rose in pitch, then stopped, then began again. With each cycle, the egg jumped to and fro at the end of the three-foot tether. The woman smiled, then grabbed the shining orb and began running her tongue over its surface. For a moment, Frederick imagined her at the beach, enjoying a summer treat. With her free hand, she pulled at her panties. They fell to her ankles. He watched as the glistening orb disappeared up between her thighs. She never took her eyes from him. The buzzing began again, and the lids of her eyes faltered a little, then closed for a few seconds. When they opened, he understood everything. I lied, Monsieur Marquis. I guess you'd realize that by now. Not twins. No, lovers. Though born of different parents, we bore an uncanny resemblance physically, and we had a similar perspective on life as well. We lived for sex and thrived on pain, used it to enhance our love-making. Neither of us could get the big O without the other's tears. Catherine was satisfied with that, I think. But me? Well, I'm an exception, like you, Marquis. I'm never quite satisfied, always seeking the next level. Again, like you, I think I'm an exception. You watch T.C. fiddle behind her back. Her bra fell to the floor. Large breasts splayed out on her chest. They were Mimi's breasts. He remembered them, their splendor. He could hear the vibrator pulsing as T.C. played with her nipples, just the way he had with her lover's. After sufficient encouragement, Catherine had feigned pleasure in his advances, but this one had no compunction about revealing her enjoyment, kneading then pulling on her flesh while he hummed in unison with the pulsing vibrator inside her. Oh, Marquis, my friend, I'm a sicko just like you. I cheated on Catherine at times with some of the inmates. Not the women, but the men... Oh, we both hated men, but I found they could be delightful sexual partners when they were screaming. Frederick watched as her body tensed, then shuddered for a few seconds. Her head rolled about her shoulders with eyes half-closed. A dribble of saliva edged its way down from the corner of her mouth. Her eyelids took seconds to fully open. There, you see, Marquis, with my little purple friend playing away, I can get a buzz just talking about it. She sat in front of him again. You're one of us, Frederick. Something just sits there, inside, dormant in your youth, waiting. It needs a mentor for the awakening. Mine was a teacher. Catherine's? An uncle. Marquis? He closed his eyes to hers. You rationalize your deviant behavior with your fantasy as an angel of God. I'm guessing a priest? Frederick can hear it again, the old man whispering in his ear. Endure the pain, the voice says, and find the joy. It's another's agony that you desire. You relish in the pain and suffering of others, building on it for your own sexual gratification. It's one of the clinically defined paraphilia. Are you familiar with that term? I'm sure sadomasochism rings a bell. For Catherine and me, our classification is peakerism. Peaker, to prick, to poke, to insert, to probe with sharp instruments. The woman stared at him, her eyebrow flicking up and down. Then she was gone. I'm not going to kill you, Marquis. 
just going to make sure you can never do what you did to Catherine to anyone else. I'm not worried about the authorities. They won't focus on what I have done to you when they get to look at your own handiwork. Once they see what's back there in your freezer, dig up your yard and drain the back marsh. Don't you agree, Marquis? She was back. He watched the gym bag drop at her feet. Now let's get down to business. We are out here in nowhere land. Noise is not an issue. At times during the process, I'll take a break and help you express yourself as we discuss our dear Catherine. But for me to be effective, I need both hands, so you won't be able to speak while I work. But you feel free to make all the noise you must. As I said, I do so much love the sounds of my sexual partners. She was smiling, and Frederick could hear the vibrator. First a slow churning that increased to a high pitch, then pulsed for a few seconds, and stopped. Then the cycle began again. In his mind he could see the little silver egg trapped inside her, screaming again and again as it tried to free itself. He felt himself slide back, the recliner leveling out. He realized for the first time he was completely naked. We'll start down here. He could see T.C. pointing to his bare feet. A new voice from the radio rang out into the room. Oh, this is a great song, just perfect for us, Marquis. T.C. bent over. He recognized the sound of a zipper. Then Frederick saw the shears, about 12 inches long, shiny with dark leather handles. For later, she said. They're from my greenhouse. She held up two objects, each hanging from an electrical cord. A cauterizer. The tube-like structure dropped from his view. The second metal object looked like a pizza cutter. A bone saw. It clattered on the floor. Now these. T.C. held up something silvery, stainless steel with long handles. It looked like a bolt cutter. Are from the O.R. And she sat the thing down. Frederick was squirming now. Do you remember your Greek mythology, Marquis, my boy? He could feel her breath on the back of his neck, or could it be the wind again whispering in his ear? Tisiphone was one of the Irenes, the goddesses of retribution. Suffering is the way to joy, he heard. Here you are bringing people to your god in your own sick way, and in the end what does God do? Brings the goddess of vengeance right to your door. Pain, endure the pain, something whispered in his ear. Find the joy. He had held his water as long as he could. He felt his face redden as the urine pooled on the leather beneath him. He looked down at the yellowing cloth that covered his privates. She was a nurse. She had expected this. If you're ready, Frederick, I think I'll start with these. With his head cradled between her knees, he couldn't see what she held. She gave out a slight groan and whimper as the vibrator cycled into the pulsating mode. He tried to yell out, but only drops of mucus sputtered up from the hole in his neck, mixing with the tears streaming down his face. The woman on the radio was now singing, I wish we never met. He felt T.C.'s whole body shudder as the sound of the vibrator picked up its pace. There'd be nothing to forget. He looked at the thin cord that snaked its way upwards to the tuft of her pubic hair, seemed to dance in rhythm to the, the vibrations. Nothing to accept, nothing to regret. Now she was at his side, bending over him. 
He forced his chin against his chest and peered downward. You're not one to be forgiven. Tisi's large breasts swayed in front of him, her long nipples pointing downwards at his toes. Just let live and go on living. Suddenly her hands were at his feet, her fingers pulling apart the toes of his right foot. We'll start with these. He saw the nippers embrace his little toe. I know I broke your heart, the voice on the radio warbled, and the first scream fully formed in his brain. Now it's all tearing me apart. this story was recently published, describes this tale as one of perverted sexual revenge. Uh-huh. Ori says, I'm not always this dark, but I didn't suggest that my eight grandchildren stay up to listen to tonight's podcast. <laughs> O.D. Hagri is a former professor of Cell Biology and Neuroanatomy at the University of Minnesota Medical School. After 20 years of that, he left academia to help in the startup of two biotech companies that focused on the development of cellular therapy for the treatment of type 1 diabetes, a continuation of the research he'd been involved with during his university years. Always an avid reader, Ori says that after his retirement, he enjoyed turning his attention from scientific writing to poetry and fiction. He's had short stories in online magazines, including Dark Media Original Fiction, Surreal Grotesque, Fiction on the Web, Flash Fiction World, and most recently, tonight's story, as mentioned, appeared in the April online issue of E-Horror Magazine. In addition, several of his works have been published through KDP at Amazon.com, under the pseudonyms D.R. Hunter and Jory Gree, and I think I pronounced that correctly, but maybe not. He is a Minnesotan, so it could be Jory Gree. Thanks, Ori. And tonight's tale can be found in the April edition of E-Horror, as mentioned, and I've put the link to that one on the Tales to Terrify website. Go look for it. Tales to Terrify welcomes two excellent new voice talents tonight, by the way. It's Just Tearing Me All Apart was read for us by Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen lives in central Virginia. He has a culinary arts degree and is an avid fan of fiction, the outdoors, and board games. He works in information technology and recently began volunteering in prisons. And for added relaxation, he enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. You can find him online at www.stevensky.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-S-K-I dot com. We'll post that on the Tales to Terrify page also. And before we skitter on to our second feature of the evening... Kevin Lucia is back in the house, and tonight he offers us a return to the gothic horrors of, well, the house. 
Here he is with Horror 101. Professor Lucia, it's all yours. Janet was alone in the big porch, alone with her suitcases. She suddenly felt very small as she stood there, hesitating before she pulled the big knocker on the door. The house was so large. She had thought of it as a medium-sized, comfortable farmhouse, with a wide sweep of lawn in front, a lawn bordered by rows of bright old-fashioned flowers, tall hollyhocks, prim pansies nestling close to the ground. A house, perhaps, of one floor, with a rambling wing and cheery windows curtained with crisp muslin. She didn't know why she expected this, except from the tone of Miss Bossevain's letter, and the fact that she was alone with one servant. Why, this house was a mansion, and must have twenty or thirty rooms. How one servant could take care of it she did not know. Three stories high, two, with turrets like paper caps at each corner. Disappointed, she looked again at the brown field beyond the porch. No green grass, only hay. No flowers, except at the far edge some vagrant sunflowers, their faces as big as dinner plates, nodding to her, grinning at her discomfiture. Woods beyond these, pine and fir, and the music of a hidden creek. The house was square and homely, a cold gray stone house. The stones faintly tinged with green moss. At the left, reaching nearly to the top of the house, ivy clung tightly to the walls, reaching inquisitive fingers around the corner to the front. The blinds were drawn all over the lower floor, and on the upper windows the shutters, whether beaten in gray, were tightly closed. A thin spiral of white smoke rose from one of the chimneys, and drawn by the breeze, floated away and melted into the darkening sky, where a lonely star was shining with a steady yellow light. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales of Terrify. I, again, am your host, Kevin Lucia, and for those just joining us, We've been exploring the development of the house motif in the evolution of horror and gothic fiction. We began as far back as The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe, moved up further to The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and last time we explored Shirley Jackson's seminal The Haunting of Hill House and Evangeline Walton's Witch House. This time we'll be shifting our focus and looking at some more modern variations of simply the gothic tale. We'll be examining three works in particular. Shirley Jackson's final novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, Rex Jardin's pulp gothic thriller, The Devil's Mansion, and finally a very mainstream, subtle examination of the stained evil leaves on a family, Emmanuel Komroff's Echoes of Evil. First of all, why a return to the gothic? Why no haunted houses this time, no cursed ground, no malicious, evil houses bent on consuming its inhabitants? Well, in an effort to be comprehensive, gothic fiction will always be a second cousin to horror because of the themes these genres both share. Isolation, madness, banishment, otherness, loneliness, regret, remorse, deeply hidden tragic family accidents or sins or secrets and misdeeds, and the stain of guilt. Both the gothic and horror genre rely heavily on these characteristics, so they will always be linked. And of course, there's the secondary, perhaps more shallow tropes they both share. Crumbling, decaying ancestral homes, representing a family's decay. Frightened, young, innocent governesses striking out on their own to work as secluded homes. Out in the country, cut off from the rest of the world. Threatened by menacing male figures or menacing maleness. These are all staples of both gothic fiction 
and horror fiction. Now, our first two novels we'll look at in tandem, because it's interesting how both of them can be viewed as existing on opposite ends of the gothic spectrum. We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson is a deeply emotional, insightful, sometimes mildly disturbing examination of madness and guilt and a kind of broken innocence, as well as the loneliness of banishment and the cruelty of the mob mentality that's also often responsible for the banishing. The second novel, Rex Chardin's The Devil's Mansion, is a fast, fun, delightfully cliched and suspenseful, if shallow, rendition of the gothic tale. All the staple elements are here, but arranged in an almost paint-by-number fashion, relying entirely on cliffhanger endings to each chapter, and a, oh no, what will she do now, vibe, instead of really offering any deep or meaningful comment on humanity or society. In fact, that could be said to be the main element that's separating these two novels, both which were published in the 60s. In We Have Always Lived in the Castle, we have three principal protagonists, Mary Catherine, Mary Cat Blackwood, her older sister Constant Blackwood, and their uncle Julian. Six years ago, their parents and their younger brother were killed, murdered actually, by arsenic poisoning in their dinner, sprinkled over the blackberries. Uncle Julian ate some of the blackberries. He was sickened. He recovered, but not entirely, and now he's senile, obsessed, and his health is failing. Constance, of course, is the older sister who is responsible for the family, but she's a recluse. She will not leave the house. Um, she's the one that makes all the food, um, and she was the one who made the dinner, Okay, and she didn't eat any blackberries. So because of this, she is charged with murder, and she becomes this figure in the town of this evil, cold, murderess who, for some reason, randomly murdered uh, most of her family. Mary Cat, however, is our main narrator, and she becomes very quickly apparent that there's something wrong with Mary Cat. The very least, mentally disturbed, slightly off balance, at the very worst, delusional and possibly schizophrenic or sociopathic. And we see this world through her eyes. And just as a side note, We Have Always Lived in the Castle is just as wonderful as The Haunting of Hill House, but for different reasons. Uh, the prose is very lyrical. And viewing this world through Mary Cat's off-balanced, fractured gaze um, is sometimes mildly disturbing, but it's a wonderful exercise in voice. Uh, one that I would rank right up there with a Holden Caulfield for Catcher in the Rye or the main protagonist from James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. In any case, the surviving Blackwoods live in, of course, their family mansion outside of town up on the hill for several years, and they actually exist in a relative atmosphere of peace. Constance never leaves the house, Uncle Julian is permanently stuck in the past. He's writing his quote-unquote memoirs about what happened, but he's obsessively rewriting them, and really you get the idea that's the only thing that's keeping him going, I and mean, he's just kind of stuck on this little bubble. Well, Mary Cat is the only one who goes in town, and that's where we seem this, see this theme of uh, this outsiderness, this seclusion, this 
Uh, they've been banished and outcasted because every time she goes in town, she goes in town once a week for supplies and groceries and library books, and she's taunted, little kids chasing her um, on the way out of town, chanting these rhymes about them being evil and Mary Cat poisoning, and, and we can see that very clearly, uh, how this town has simply decided they are all evil, and this is like the gothic novel from the perspective of those who are stuck in the house, those who are facing the banishing. So this is what I think makes it a little bit of a higher commentary on human existence because instead of the traditional, there's the gothic house, there's those weirdos up there, they're all strange. This novel is from the perspective of those weirdos and, and what brought them to that state. Now eventually our threatening male arise on the scene when their estranged cousin Charles shows up and wants to resume relations between the two branches of the family. But really, he's there um, to uh, kind of ferret out their hidden fortune. You know, somewhere in the house there's a Blackwood fortune. And he begins manipulating everyone in the family. Uncle Julian doesn't like him to begin with. Constance, Constance, you get it's kind of a sad portrayal because you get the idea that she's the only, again, quote-unquote normal person there who's been forced to take care of everybody. So initially when Charles shows up, you can see Constance reacting to this. So there's a normal person, a male, an attractive male, you know, a distant cousin, so the relationship idea is not out of the, uh, the uh, question, I guess. And it's the opportunity for her to have a conversation with someone rational. You know, she never once demeans Mary Cat, but it becomes very obvious as the novel wears on that Mary Cat is not mentally stable. So we have that brief period there where we can understand why Constance lets Charles in, but Charles also begins to manipulate that and trying to turn members of the family against each other so he can get at this fortune. And again, as I mentioned, uh, what makes this novel stand out is this is Shirley Jackson telling us the gothic tale and the uh, tale of those living in the gothic house from their perspective, uh, from Mary Cat's surreal, odd perspective. And eventually, after a fire destroys part of the house, unintentionally, intentionally caused uh, by Mary Cat, knocking Charles, smoking cigar, after Charles has moved into her parents' room and has moved into her parents' bed and starts wearing her father's clothing and watch and things like that. So there's a real kind of intense replacement vibe there going. Um, and you know, we're not really sure if Mary Cat started the fire on purpose or accidentally knocked uh, Charles's pipe in the garbage to start the fire after most of the house is destroyed when the firemen show up we have this really weird again disturbing moment where all this repressed hate in the village um, comes to a head and as they're trying the firemen are trying to save the blackwood manor villagers begin smashing the windows and storming the house and trashing things around poor Mary Cat and Constance. So we see this eruption of violence from those that have ostracized him for so many years, um, really coming and boiling to a head. And after it's all said and done, and the fire has been beaten down, and the only thing that's left of the house that's livable is like the kitchen and a few first-floor rooms. They become secluded forever, and they never leave the house. And you can actually hear 
from Mary Cass' perspective as they're hiding in the kitchen when kids would walk by the house and be like, oh, there's so-and-so in that house telling these ghost stories. So again, it's a real poignant story uh, from their perspective of how they have become the gothic tale that everybody talks about. The Devil's Mansion by Rex Jardin tells this story, the gothic story, uh, with all the surface elements, all the tropes that we've come to recognize at this point as being a gothic tale. A young woman fleeing uh, the, the morning of her father's death accepts a job at an old secluded mansion just on the outside of town up in the hill. Uh, she accepts a job as being an assistant to an elderly woman. Uh, however, once she's there, she finds herself trapped in the house by this demon-like dog with glowing red eyes and the seemingly menacing mistress in the house has an iron grip and won't let her leave. And there's also hints that other girls before her have been asked to this house and then they've vanished. And eventually, as the story wears on, we are clued into a hidden presence in the house, possibly male, who's the one who's controlling this kind of demonic red-eyed dog uh, also keeping the mistress under his thumb, and we eventually learn that he has chosen Janet to be his bride. And of course, Janet has no choice in the matter. And here we have another major difference between as we have always lived in the castle and the Devil's Mansion, with the inclusion of Blair Rodman in the Devil's Mansion a plucky, hearty, determined, and brave male protagonist who, after meeting Janet only once, is smitten and in love, and he refuses to leave town until he can rescue Janet from the clutches of this evil. Of course, he's also a writer, too. Both our gothic novels imply or hint at supernatural, magical forces at work. In Jackson's novel... However, this is part of Mary Cat's unreliable psychosis. It's an aspect of her mild and her odd perspective of the world. You know, she believes in magic. She believes in magic words and magic objects that she buries around the property to, quote-unquote, protect them. And really, we, this is portrayed to us very, very early on as part of her psychosis. You know, and it's part of, the, again, this odd innocence that she has. And that she believes in these supernatural forces and they will protect her and her sister and Uncle Julian. In the Devil's Mansion, the magic or supernatural, again, very subtly implied, but almost kind of as throwaway elements because we never really come back to them. They're not really fleshed out. Again, it's implied that this dog is not a normal dog. Is it like a hound from hell, that sort of thing? It's also implied that the evil male protagonist, who turns out to be the mistress's uh, horribly deformed son, which, again, there's a real simple correlation there. Horribly deformed on the outside obviously means twisted and evil on the inside. And he's implied that he has supernatural powers to bring her back with from the dead, because when the mistress finally dies, she's free, uh, and he had um, several times, you know, brought her back from the brink of death to keep torturing her, but that's never really followed up. That's just, again, kind of thrown out there. It's kind of an ooh, ooga-booga factor. Again, uh, also in The Devil's Mansion, the relationship between the villagers and that old evil house is pretty standard. Evil house up on the hill, villagers don't ever talk about it, just don't ever communicate with them, and they're evil and 
to be avoided at all costs. Unlike, again, the very complicated, in many ways more disturbing dynamic that's expressed in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, The Devil's Mansion is much more standard in, in that way. One thing I have to point out, though, is that even though Jardin's work, The Devil's Mansion, is lighter in tone and the lighter of the two thematically, especially in substance, I think it's important for the reason because of the subgenre it represents that developed through the 50s and 70s, new gothic romances that were usually published by the now defunct paperback library. So it's, it's interesting to see how even though, again, these tales were probably low on substance, very standard of a type, this is the effect and the power of the Gothic tradition that became a type, that it became, you know, a story that actually had its own logo. And I, I posted this picture to uh, the Horror 101 Facebook website, and it uh, it's actually had its own logo of a silhouetted castle and this figure drifting across the front, and there's always one window that's lighted. So I think it's important for that aspect, that, uh, that it re- represents the subgenre that became very popular. You know, the covers were always constantly featuring horrified women fleeing a glowing castle or house, which again, always had that one secluded lit window. I would have liked to, if I'd had time in my schedule, to read several of these, just to see how the, the stories all mashed up. In my travels, however, I did find a blog that was dedicated to these paperback pulp gothic romance stories called My Love Haunted Heart. And it can be found at hauntedhearts.wordpress.com. And I'll also post that link on the Horror 101 Facebook page. And it's actually a really comprehensive list of the paper gothic romance genre. A lot of those novels can be found there. And an interesting aside that I came across in my research of this is that uh, many of these titles were written by women. But many were also written by men with pen names. A prime and very interesting example is Frank Belknap Long, you know, recognized for, you know, very literary uh, horror or kind of macabre fiction. Frank Belknap Long published several of these titles under his wife's name. So I th- thought it was very interesting, the whole Dean Koontz effect there, which we'll eventually talk about, Dean, his impact on the genre, but that, uh, you know, let's write whatever novels we can possibly can to try to bring in some sort of revenue. The final novel we're going to look at tonight is a novel called Echo of Evil by Manuel Komarov. It's an excellent example, and I, I stumbled over this novel in my collection of pulp novels in my office, but it's an excellent example of gothic sensibilities in a story without a lot of the usual tropes of the gothic tale. So in this novel, we don't have the secluded house. You know, we don't have uh, eerie, weird people living in that house that we avoid at all costs. What we have here is the essences of the gothic tale kind of distilled in a very suburban, I wouldn't call it suburban gothic quite yet. I'm currently reading right now The House Next Door. Now that is really, we're going to a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's Fanny Future Broadcast. That is really the suburban gothic as strongest. But Echo of Evil is not quite there, but it's just a very interesting look at these um, traits of the gothic tale, you know, that hidden secret. There's this duality in these two sisters that have taken radically different paths in their lives, radically different, you know, consequences. The idea of a stolen or a wasted life. And also it's how that secret guilt, things that are hidden in the past always come back. And they always come back to ruin a sense of tranquility. They're suicide and, and because of the secret, Again, their house, if we take the the symbolic definition of house, their family, their heritage is ruined because this hidden evil comes back. Echo of Evil is the story of Roy Hollows and Esther Hollows and how they have moved from Illinois to their new suburban town, how they've rebuilt their life. After the shame, embarrassment of Hester's sister, Anna, after she committed murder and killed her husband, an adulterer, and they have rebuilt their life, they have moved away, moved away from the scrutiny, Anna has been in prison this entire time, and they've established, again, a world of peace. They have a oldest daughter, Laura. They have two other children. Laura's engaged to be married to a fine young man, and they have a new life. They have a house they're renting. He has a, a produce store, Roy does, and they've escaped. They've escaped this, uh, the intense scrutiny and background, you know, especially, you know, the sisters, twin sisters, same age, you know, the one committing murder. But the story begins with them receiving a letter that Anna, after 30-some years in jail, has now been released, and that Anna is coming to visit and stay with them. And from there, the plot is fairly straightforward. Probably guess what's coming. Anna comes to their home, and it's one of those, again, those situations where she has no one. She's on her own. Who else is she going to turn to? And, of course, this entire time, Hester has written her these letters, never expecting that Anna would be released so early, these letters about how you always have me to depend on, I'll always be here for you. So, of course, what's the first thing Anna's going to do upon her release is seek out her sister for uh, you know a time of rest and um, sanctuary. So it's one of those things where Hester's been writing all these things, never expecting Anna to be released. Now suddenly here is Anna showing up at their house. And, of course, the, su- the evil in this novel is very subtle. I don't want to say pedestrian and mundane, because that seems to trivialize it, but we're not talking about a supernatural he- evil here, which, again, makes this book kind of like 
an extension or variation of the natural Gothic, because the evil that Anna brings with her is the shame and guilt of her past. Of course, Roy and Hester, their peace is, is, is threatened to be destroyed because they've left this sensation behind, because in the novel, Anna is one of these like nationwide sensations that splash across the media. So now in this new small town, uh, the Hollows um, established peace is jeopardized. So not only is Anna bringing her guilt and her shame and maybe some of her repressed anger because yes, she admits the fact that she's killed her husband and she's paid her dues, but she's also had to watch her sister go on and have the life that she could never have to have a husband, to have a children, children, to have an older daughter who is engaged to be married to a young man. These are the things that Anna has lost and thrown away and now has to watch her sister enjoy. So she brings all of that, her guilt, her shame, her pent-up resentment with her. And that's, a, again, a very subtle kind of bubbling, if you want to call it evil. Whereas, because she's here, now the Hollows are very anxious over losing their peace, wondering what might happen. And they also have their own feelings of guilt. They would feel this about Anna, that they can't offer her this peace, that they're so consumed and worried about, you know, what's going to happen. Of course, again, maybe a little predictable, the ostracized sister who's the family secret, because the kids before she arrives, the little kids especially, was just told that their aunt died. I guess we have that classic, you know, here's the hidden family member we've put away to avoid embarrassment. She and Laura end up developing a relationship. Now, it doesn't go so far as to make her manipulative and turn the oldest daughter against the rest of the family, but from the moment that Anna Rudd shows up, things begin to fall apart. Anna Rudd is not intrinsically evil and malevolent. Neither is Hester. But the arrival of this deeply repressed secret changes everything. And eventually, Laura ends up breaking off her engagement, and her parents send her out of town. Husband and wife begin to uh, argue, where ironically enough, Hester is the one who eventually wants Anna to leave, because Anna is her sister. Again, there's a little nice sense of duality here. She's the black sheep of the family. She's the one who shot her husband and ruined the family name. Now she's here and destroying our peace, where the husband is, and there's no sense of infidelity here or anything like that, where the husband is trying to find some honorable way of not perpetuating all this blackness and darkness. The town is murmuring and talking and spreading rumors. Again, not really gothic, but now this little clapboard house that they live in has become the object of curiosity, where people are always driving by and stopping. And Look, that's where the murderess lives. You know, once the word gets out, the landlady is now thinking she needs to evict them because of all this unwanted sensationalism. And... Again, the ultimate end of this story is that secrets do not stay secrets. And that secrets cannot only be repressed for so long. By the end of the story, Anna commits suicide because she believes she's come to a point where she has nowhere to go. Uh, she has no one she can trust. And, um, and she also realizes she believes she's ruined her sister's family. This is the only way to stop this blackness and darkness and this, this evil to keep it from perpetuating is by taking her own life. And unfortunately, of course, this all comes too late because I wouldn't say the family is ruined, 
but they come to a point where they are, they are now the family of the murderess who now killed herself in her in their home. Uh, so they end up having to pack up and leave. And again, if you were to weight this against my previous two novels, it's a very mainstream novel, on the edges of being horror, definitely. Not necessarily horror or gothic, but it, it, I included it because it's, it's an interesting look at these gothic sensibilities that will be played out in a very mainstream novel that doesn't is not really categorized by genre. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of another installment of Horror 101 with an added feature. I'd like to add this little bit at the end of every broadcast because really, as I've gotten deeper and deeper into this, the reality has hit home. How can I possibly hit all the novels that I'd like to hit in each each motif and each strand of the horror genre, especially the current works? That's never going to happen. So what I'm going to do is at the end of every broadcast, I'm going to suggest really modern novels by current writers that are along the same lines of these broadcasts that you can go out and get uh, that I would recommend. I'm not going to do a detailed breakdown of them or analysis. It's just going to be kind of like a Horror 101 recommends at the very end. And the three novels that I would recommend that fit into the house gothic motif that were entertaining um, and well-written that I would encourage anyone to go out and check out. First of all, would be Urban Gothic by Brian Keene. You know, an excellent novel of taking the idea of the gothic in the country but bringing it to the inner city um, uh, surroundings. And I believe he's got a, a sequel to that coming up called Suburban Gothic. Two novels uh, by Jonathan Jans, The Sorrows and The Darkest Lullaby. The Sorrows being kind of an, a really nice classic reinterpretation of that castle and locked castle and things in the castle. Uh, and The Darkest Lullaby being a really nice uh, rendition of we've inherited a house from a sketchy aunt who's got a dark past. And of course, the house and the surrounding property are all cursed because of this. Uh, the first one, Urban Gothic by Brian Keene, is published by Dead Eye Press. And The Sorrows and The Darkest Lullaby by Jonathan Jans are published by Sam Hain Publishing. So I would definitely recommend those as far as uh, modern interpretations of this uh, motif. Once again, I'm Kevin Lucia. Thank you for listening. If you haven't had a chance to add us on Facebook, it's Horror 101, Exploring the Roots of the Horror Genre. And I just post tidbits there, little added you know, links of things that I've been researching. So please, by all means, go add us on Facebook. Again, thanks for listening. And until next time, keep reading. Thank you, Kevin. Well, Horror 101 is a survey course. You cannot cover it all, so thank you for the further reading list. I've posted some of the links for those books Kevin mentioned on the Tales to Terrify website. And by the way, if you have suggestions for books or stories that might go along with tonight's 101 segment, feel free to post them on our Facebook page. You know where that is. Back to fiction, and our second tale of the night is from John Dodds. John first graced our ears with his narration of Gary Fry's memorable tale of beer, curmudgeonry, and icky ghosts called The Indelible Strain of Company, back in show number 63. John Dodds is a Scot who lives in Bulgaria, 
and has authored numerous short tales, three of which have received honorable mention in Ellen Datlow's Year's Best Fantasy and Horror anthologies. He's also got several novels out and about. The first two books in his crime series, The Kendrick Chronicles, Bone Machines, and Kali's Kiss, are now out as audiobooks from Blackstone Audio Incorporated. You can reach John at http colon slash slash bonemachines.wordpress.com. That's bonemachines, all one word, dot wordpress.com. And that, too, will be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Here is John Dodd's The Anatomy of Seahorses. My bed isn't for sleeping in. Not anymore. And I can't bring myself to wash the sheets. Because that would erase the stains and creases that are the road map of my life. Okay, the map is blurry and it's difficult to distinguish sweat from blood, from semen, from shit and other stains I have no name for. But it anchors me to reality. This stain map reminds me that I haven't completely left my humanity behind. Wash it clean and I will lose my way in that arctic whiteness. Down in the streets, kids are squealing, competing with the seagulls, harrying the fishing boats. It's a forlorn sound. I used to be one of them once. Seems like such a long time ago. But in truth, it can't be more than 15 years since I was out in the streets back home with youngsters just like them. Playing and stealing, doing glue, beating up tramps. You know, kid stuff. Out there in the lounge, what I've come to think of as the waiting room, Dijai is waiting and watching, like he can see through walls or something, like he can see me in my bed and spy on the world outside the apartment. Up here, eight stories high, he's God, or maybe more like a vulture. The Chinese girl visits sometimes, bringing him bowls of steamed vegetables or trays of sushi and crispy seaweed. She can't be more than fourteen, but her eyes are ancient. The thin walls muffle their conversation. Not that it makes any difference because they're speaking in Cantonese. Babble. No more comprehensible to me than the bright noise of Tokyo or the otaku boys worshipping their virtual pop idols and masturbating over anime and manga girls. All I know is the meaning of Dijai. It means bird with long feathers, and the girl is called Lei rain over fields. They're talking about the drowned man again. How I know this is by the hushed tones they're using, whispers that you accord to mysteries and to darkness. Full voice is reserved for the daylight hours, for the ordinary business of life. Not for me, though, because my world now is entirely whispers. First time I ever saw Jai was in Gangsu province, on the upper reaches of the Yellow River. My boss instructed me to meet him at a roadside temple at some anonymous crossroads or other. I had travelled through the Ningjiaihui autonomous region to reach him, subsisting on my journey mostly on rice and the occasional slice of pork. I was prepared for some oriental bruiser armed with imported Magnum 45s, eight-cut knives and a tiger fork with maybe a machine gun thrown in for good measure. East meets west. Instead, what I see 
is a tall for a Chinaman, slender man in his early forties, wearing a black T-shirt and linen trousers, a backwards baseball cap with the Coke logo on it, and carrying a small rucksack. His skin is the colour of a lychee. Paul Wilbur, I told him, thrusting out my hand. What does your name mean? He asked, taking my slight hand in his meaty one and giving it a single firm shake. I must have looked bemused, because he shook his head and went on. Not worry, I look it up on the internet. For some peculiar reason, his statement made me want to laugh, but his earnest inquisitiveness forced me to stifle it. I noticed when I stood close to him that he had a distinctive scent of ginger, perhaps, mixed with cloves. Puffs of dust devils blew around us on the road. It was more of a dirt track, really. And I squinted at the horizon where the sun was melting with a final yellow-white flare into the ground. The driver had dumped me from his taxi, an army surplus jeep. You could still make out the communist Chinese star on it, albeit scratched and parkmarked and faded over the years. At a crossroads, where I found myself alone, disorientated and travel-weary. What I wanted most at this point was a long, cold beer and something to eat. And to sleep, oh yes, more than anything else in creation, I wanted to sleep. As if reading my mind, Jai said, "You hungry? I know good place." His good place turned out to be a bar on the outskirts of some nameless village, but the food was decent, even if the beer was lukewarm. So he said, "Your boss, an importer, yes." Too many questions, I thought, and played it cagey. Sort of based in the states, he travels a lot, and he's dying of colon cancer. I didn't add, and he's a thief and a wide boy like me. I also didn't add, although I knew he was probably only getting what he deserved. The way we all get our comeuppance right in the arse. I mean, doing the job I do, and people like me in the same line of work, we all know we're going to get shafted one day. Later is better, but sooner means you don't have time to dwell on it so much. Time to go, Jai announced when I was only halfway through my beer. Glass half raised to my lips, I said sharply. Okay, if I finish my drink first, I've been on the road for four days and I'm thirsty. Jai shrugged. How he could be so determined one second and so indifferent the next was a puzzle. Which came to annoy me more and more as it revealed itself to be his major personality trait. Later, having struggled up a densely wooded hillside with no recognizable path, we stopped for a cigarette. Rather, I did, since Jai doesn't smoke, and I tried to make conversation. How come you're not wearing a uniform? A uniform cop wandering the hills with all the bandits about, as you Westerners say. Yeah, right. I laughed at that. Jai can be a funny guy. I'm English, Jai. Try not on your nelly. It was Jai's turn to laugh. Now you are. What is it? Taking the piss? That cracked me up, and I spluttered a lungful of cigarette smoke right in his face. He grimaced and swiped at the smoke like it was a cloud of mosquitoes. On reflection, the bottle green police uniform with its yellow piping on the trousers and crimson epaulets on the jacket could have been a potentially serious sartorial misjudgment. Jai was a well-read man, as it turned out, and he took the Times and the Guardian for balance. He said, 
balance and harmony being his guiding philosophy, from which he learned of the West what he did not glean from Sky TV. After I stubbed out my cigarette on the bowl of a tree, we pressed on. By the time we'd walked another hour or so, my lungs were starting to get the better of me, as the air thinned and the incline steepened. But presently we reached a rather incongruous short flight of stone steps with Chinese dragons carved in the balustrades. At the top was a flagstone plaza with a temple to Buddha at its centre. The Buddha's gold foil skin was flaking like a horrific case of eczema. But his skin was a baby's compared to that of the drowned man, whom we found after another half hour of searching. The map coordinates had been more or less correct. Our informants may not have known what we would find exactly, or if they did, had chosen not to tell us. Jai kicked aside drifts of dry leaves that half concealed the mystery beneath. The corpse was lying face down on the red earth. Its formerly cream coat, a Burberry by the looks, was smeared with oil and mud and, weirdly, strands of seaweed. His scalp had simply slipped off, the blackened flesh glutinous and puffy and stinking from the drowning. Imagine a melted jelly baby. As for the smell, I'd rather not describe it. I'm not squeamish as a rule, but I had to pinch my nostrils shut and breathe through my mouth. Jai cast about with his eagle eye. No sign of any footprints apart from ours. Perhaps they had been brushed away, or there never had been any in the first place. We found the drowned man 3,000 feet above sea level. For all the strangeness of my time in Japan, I encountered nothing of this magnitude. Back in Tokyo, the volatile mercantile atmosphere, the relentless downpour of information rain, creates a kind of high-tech avarice. The businessmen who operate in this climate play a very adult game that stands in marked contrast to their real selves with their secretive, fetishistic, puerile sexuality. Try not to understand Tokyo, especially the city I know. Tokyo sweeps away anything from which meaning might be construed. And yet it has its internal logic, but logic like the workings of a clock rather than human logic, the cogs and gears meshing and turning, turning and meshing, setting off chain reactions with no apparent purpose than to demonstrate that time is moving on, or, in the case of Japan, that it waits for no man. Twice I had evaded assassination in Tokyo by a gang lord who blamed me for the death of his son, even though it was clear he had just taken off, most probably with that idiot cyberkid boyfriend of his. My real boss, back in the States, managed to persuade him that I had done my job as a bodyguard, and that even first-class bodyguards like myself cannot legislate for the behaviour of the young and foolish. My boss had lent me to Prince Lee. He declined to acknowledge his given name of Chow Lee as a bodyguard, business liaison and secretly spy. Prince had been rerouting portions of the boss's drug take, so he had him killed by yours truly, and that was why I needed to leave so fast. The prince still had his acolytes. Jai was crouching down and pushing at the drowned man's clothing with a twig. Flipping back the coat and the jacket on the left side, 
He had to roll the corpse back a little to leave the garment from under the torso. He withdrew with the tips of his fingers a small polystyrene Ziploc packet. He wiped the mud away and held it up to the sunlight. The dark object inside resembled a tiny fetus. On closer inspection, it turned out to be a desiccated seahorse. He stood up, slipped the packet into the pocket of his rucksack, which he then shouldered and turned to me. This is bad praise, Englishman. Bad for you, bad for me. We leave, yes. In his eyes there were moving flecks of phosphines, like the after-image of the sun, the floaters you see behind your eyelids. I might have imagined them, or it was some weird prismatic effect of twilight approaching. I stood firm. You seem to know something, and we're both here for the same reason, right? Your boss's courier, yes, that is him. How he could be so certain, I could not imagine. The corpse looked like four gallons of snot spread on a log. The face would be unrecognisable even to the man's own mother. News had got around that the courier, I preferred the mule, Che Chi Fu, was dead. But this news was too old for it to make any sense that his body would be here, drowned, on the side of a hill, in the middle of nowhere. Is that all he has on him? I asked, a deep-rooted anxiety knotting my guts. The anxiety rose from the need to find a certain package, the fear that I might not find it, and the bigger fear that I might. Operating out of Beijing, and sometimes the South China Sea, Chifu traded in commodities, particularly those that attracted a high price in the West. The boss was a good customer. It was drug trafficking mainly, but lately, and rather oddly, I thought, in traditional Chinese medicines. Some of these medicines were illegal, which set me to wondering if dried seahorse belonged in that category. Nothing more, Jai confirmed. So that's it, I said. This is what we're paying you for, to find some flattened cartoon character that you claim is Chi Fu. I mean, he could be anybody. Some bandit you decide to get rid of, for instance. Bandits not wear Burberry, he quipped, but I was either too nervous or too hacked off to smile. He added, it is him, but what does it matter if it's not? Your boss does not get delivery either way. I sighed. Jai was being obtuse now. My information was there had been more of the stuff, and that Chi Fu had most likely hidden it in a safe place, maybe even on this hillside somewhere, though that seemed highly improbable. My boss just wants what he paid for. Chifu had it, and we asked you to find him for us. Which you're saying you did, but I don't know. I had been warned to be cautious around Jai. He could be trusted up to a point, but beyond that there were attributes ascribed to him that suggested ulterior motives. I am cynical from the years I have spent in my trade, the name of which varies from thief to assassin depending on who's paying for what so I chose suspicion over reason. If it appeared that I was not prepared to accept that the corpse was that of Che Chi Fu, I would force him to question if I had ulterior motives of my own. I said, OK, say it is him. I still need to take back with me what my boss paid him for. And what is that, Englishman? A cure for cancer, I told him. The first person I ever killed was my girlfriend, Rebecca. Not that I loved her or anything, though she was great in bed and grateful for the attention. 
while I did feel a sense of ownership over her. She had betrayed me, stolen from me, and, worst of all, betrayed the Corps. The Corps was our group, or gang, if you like, comprised of heavy hitters in business and streetwise kids like me that they treated like equals. I liked that about them. My boss was one of them, the execs, and he was on his way up, and it helped that he developed a special affection for me. Not in a gay way, you understand, though I know he's homosexual, but in a male-bonding kind of way. Oliver, that's what we'll call you, the boss said before he was the boss and just another smart kid on the ascendancy. Twisted Oliver. Because of me being an orphan and all, and having been brought up at the expense of the Corps. I didn't appreciate the twisted part, and I told him so. He laughed in that languid way which suggested he was joking, but not completely. Lighten up, my man. Just wordplay. Sorry. So are we cushy now? I nodded. Cushy, yeah. Rebecca, the boss informed me, had been riding the diamond courier. All the while he was creaming inside her, she was some of his stolen earnings. Earnings that rightfully belonged to my boss. The guy thought the few weeks in the sack with Rebecca meant they were an item. Innocent sod. Anyhow, I shot her first, a bullet nicely placed between her lips that burst open the back of her head. And naturally, he got it right in the balls. Natural justice, you might say. I cried for a couple of days after that. It was doubt, you see. What if I really had loved Rebecca after all? Still... I would never know, and I had to console myself with the promotion and the heavy bonus. The Corps even paid for an extended holiday for me in the East, which is why I'm here now. I've operated in the East for more than four years, and this is where I have to remain. I mean, it's not like I have much choice in the matter. Seahorses are strange. It's the male that gives birth. Their genus is Hippocampus, derived from the Greek hippos, for horse and campus, meaning sea monster. Early taxonomists were baffled by them. Dijai discovered this through research on the internet. While surfing, he also found and presented to me as if it were a gift the meaning of my surname. Wilbur means beloved stronghold. I like that. And, he went on, swiveling on his computer chair towards me, the glow of the monitor in the darkened room making a chiaroscuro abstraction of the left side of his face. The trade for them in Chinese medicine, trinkets and curios is illegal. I have been awake for all but two days in the six months since Chi Fu's death. It was now less than 24 hours since we had found Chi Fu on the hillside. Now, of course, I know for sure it was him. Oh yes, it was definitely him. That hill with its Buddha was a sacred place. One of the places where the war between this world and the other world is weakest. One of the places in which the doorway between can be opened. I had been summoned there because what happened could only be brought about by opening one of those doorways as I must have done then on that hillside stupidly and without realising it. To say I haven't slept would be an understatement. Oddly enough, I didn't feel tired. Not even so much as having to stifle a yawn. I haven't felt anything approaching that for a very long time. 
You need to understand me clearly here, so I'll spell it out. I'm not an insomniac. This is not sleep deprivation, sleep apnea, or any disorder associated with that part of the brain that controls the tides of wakefulness and rest. So when I tell you that I have not slept since that day, that is precisely what I mean. Which tells us what, I ask him. Nothing. Much about man, perhaps, and crime. Nothing yet about why. He was being punished, I said, simple. Jai squinted at me suspiciously. For? Stealing, I guess, I shrugged non-committally. Raping, murdering, doing a runner, cooking the books, who knows? All comes down to the same thing. Like I said, punishment, retribution. I was stringing Jai along. Right now, I didn't give a damn about the drowned man and could not know just how much of a damn I would give later. It was my hope merely that Jai's investigations would lead me to the rest of the missing substance promised to the boss. Jai reapplied himself to his task without saying another word for five minutes or so. He pulled up police records on screen, the software searching all the known databases for a match of the DNA samples and dental records of the drowned man. There hadn't been much left of them by the time Jai's investigations and forensic people had cordoned off the site. And what a motley crew they were, jittery as horses before a thunderstorm. I heard a word repeated in Cantonese and later I asked Jai what it meant. Hungry ghost, he said without irony. We'd come back to his house last night and I had accepted the offer of a bed there for a few nights. We were on our second glass of Glenmorangi when the subject arose. Quite suddenly, he leapt up from his Afghan-patterned couch to his book-lined walls, rifled the spine of the third shelf high with the tips of his fingers and made a small grunt of satisfaction as he stopped at a title and withdrew it. The book's title was something about mythology, and I guessed it was a dictionary of some sort. Quickly flipping through it, stabbed his finger as a place marker on the page and turned the book towards me to show me the entry. It said, Greed is the emotion of the hungry ghost realm. The hungry ghosts are beings with huge hungry bellies and tiny mouths and throats. Some inhabit parched lands where there is not even a mention of water for hundreds of years. Others may find food and drink, yet if they swallow even a little through their tiny mouths, the food bursts into flames in their stomachs. This was all nonsense. There are no such thing as ghosts, at least in the way our culture understands them. Here's my explanation, because I see the truth of the matter now. A byproduct of the inability to sleep is that my dreams are manifest for me. That's what ghosts really are. I wonder if I'm the only one who knows their real natures. After all, in the absence of the realm of sleep, dreams need somewhere to live. You might think this wouldn't be so bad. The idea of your most vivid, empowering, erotic or deliriously creative dreams emerging into the waking world. Except I don't have those cool sorts of dreams. Me, I have the other kind, the guilty ones, the sick ones, the lonely, shrieking, angst-ridden ones, the ones that twist every fear, every anxiety you have into grotesque, distorted shapes in an M.C. Escher landscape. You know the ones I mean. Nightmares. Worst is this one, the drowned man. 
When I try to sleep, he stands at the foot of my bed, his translucent skin shimmering with its network of blue and red and purple veins and arteries, revealing the organs beneath and the bones beneath them. In my dream, he has only the sketch of a face, the mouth and nose mere smudges, only the terrible, accusing eyes in high definition. His eyes are a bright and violent shade of indigo, the colour that's not supposed to exist but which I can clearly see encircling those ghastly silver pupils. Sometimes he plunges his hand through my temple and tries to wrench my eyeballs out so he can play marbles with them. I can feel the tug on my optic nerves and muscle fibres like he's yanking out an electrical cord from a socket. Sometimes I squeal when he does this, but I realise he cannot, in actuality, achieve his goal. He is only a nightmare, after all. He will also, for variety, reach into my chest cavity and try to squeeze my lung sacs like bad pipe skins or bellows. Or he will try to crush my heart. All of this fails. The awful part is not that he might succeed, because I know that is impossible. No, what terrifies me the most is that he keeps trying so hard. How can I describe what this is like? One way would be this. You know when people tell you the only thing to fear is fear itself, or the sheer stress of approaching the unknown, like the first time you're about to do a bungee drop into a thousand-foot gorge. It's that kind of fear, the worst kind, the kind that can only be alleviated by meeting the fear head-on. Except that last part isn't an option for me. I can never meet it head-on. I will never be able to do that until the day I die, and maybe not even then. Can you imagine now what it's like? While I lie here on my bed, my limbs pale from lack of sunlight, my wasted muscles singing with pain like plucked banjo strings, my insides an inferno, I find myself remembering something. The one thing I now realise really matters most and always has. It is the memory of my boss in one of his rare moments of tenderness. He said something to me I shall never forget. What he said, or confessed if you will, was this. I love you, Paul. You know that, don't you? Yes, I said, feeling uncomfortable but also strangely elated. Truth is, I loved him too. Like a brother, a father, like a wife. He had saved my life on more than one occasion. He kept me out of jail through his network of contacts and by calling in favours, and he comforted me in my sorrow after I killed Rebecca and the others. Some of the people I killed drove a stake of remorse into my heart, because I had known them for a long time or had been friends with them, and I would weep each time inconsolably, often for days. My boss always saved me, but now that he is dead... There is nothing he can do to help me. I miss him. The bandits finally caught up to us at the wharves. We were there interviewing longshoremen, fishermen and assorted sea dogs. One of these, a squirrely short arse, with the face, the colour and texture of the roots of a bonsai tree, led us behind a stack of rank lobster pots to a hatch in the pier. He flung the hatch back and pointed with an excited chattering to the metal ladder leading to the churning, oily surface of the water. It was 7pm and still light. 
Jai had been investigating the circumstances of the drow man's death for a week, and even more urgently trying to locate the package he was meant to have been carrying. When I suggested to Jai on the drive to the harbour that the package must have been long gone, he shook his head and said, Nothing as valuable as this goes missing. We now know someone has it. How could Jai know anything of the sort? His team had left the drowman on the side of that hill. They had been too superstitious to move it, as though it had appeared there for a reason. He's telling us to go down, Jai said. I frowned, puzzled. To what? There's nothing down there but water. What we are looking for is down there, he said. They are afraid to go near. And why would he tell you this? I asked pragmatically. Money, of course, and I have, what do you say, the goods on some men here? I can be nice or not nice to them. Information is power, as you Westerners believe. But you don't. Another of his equivocal expressions, agreement, disagreement, indifference or irony, they were all there in that half-smile of his. And then he started down the ladder, only briefly looking up at me to say, I understand Seahorse now. The rest of his words were erased by the increasing agitation of the waves against the pilings, by the sound of forklift trucks and cranes manoeuvring pallets and containers, and by the rising wind. Before I joined Jai, I looked down at his foreshortened figure ten feet below. He was standing on the water. A walkway, he shouted up, and stamped a foot up and down, splashing water. Concrete! In the shadows of the pier, I hadn't seen this, but once I had descended, it was clear enough, a broad slab of concrete between the wooden pilings to clamber onto small boats when the tide was low. The brine was going to ruin my calfskin boots. Down here, the wind was much stronger. The geometries of the pier and its array of pilings as thick as oak trees, creating a vortex of restless energy that plucked at our clothes and carelessly flung away each word we spoke. Communication was problematic, and so gestures had to suffice. Jai indicated a junction in the hallway, and we took this left fork, almost slipping several times on the mosses and weeds coating the walkway, and we were led deeper into the darkened recesses below the pier, where sunlight did not penetrate. Something made me turn around. He wasn't here, thank God. The drowned man wasn't following me, or any of his entourage. I didn't tell you about them, did I? I've been seeing them all since the day we found the drowned man and every day since. They are here, in my room, even now, around my bed. To be honest, they are difficult to talk about because impossible to describe. They're like huge flying beetles with rusty iron carapaces and a variety of human mouths scattered across their tough backs. The mouths speak rapidly like people with Tourette's, cursing and muttering and spouting obscenities. They fly at me, these things, and the mouths try to tear at my flesh. The bloodied rows of sharp teeth bear themselves as they close in on my body. They try to rip off my ears, the meat of my cheeks, my nose, my cock. They terrify me, these things, but not as much as the drowned man. He is more frightening because he is closer to my perceptions of the real world. 
and just enough to one side of it to threaten to unhinge me. And I couldn't tell Jai any of this, because, I suspect, he would either have not believed me or he would have had me sectioned into an asylum. Ironically, I now appreciate that Jai would have believed my story without question, because of who he really is. Before coming on the interrogation with Jai, I sat on his toilet pedestal with my left arm cinched in a length of rubber tubing. I smacked the crook of my arm to bring up a vein, then picked up the syringe from the cistern behind me. My hand trembled. I've always been suspicious of doctors and medicine, but regular drugs like heroin and morphine have no effect on me, so I don't take them any more. This stuff, the grey powder, liquidised with a flame held below its foil container and sucked up into the needle, had to do the trick. It was a matter of belief more than scientific research. I had to believe it would let me finally fall asleep. I felt sure the boss would forgive me. He was a dead man anyhow, and both of us knew that. The stuff was meant for him, but I felt I needed it more. We soon found ourselves in the darkest regions of the seaweedy underworld of the pier. Weeds clung to every surface, stripping ferns of it, hanging from the underside of the wooden walkway above us, mucus-like snakes of it, seaweeds of all kinds, from bladder rack to flat strap strips, and some that were like bushes and miniature leafless trees, all of it seeming to slide and coil and uncoil as we approached. I took this as another aspect of my waking dreams, and even when strands of seaweed like sodden leather straps snaked around my wrist and tried to pull me backwards, to fall into the sea perhaps, or to tie me to a stanchion until high tide drowned me, I chose to ignore them as best I could. My body shivered with cold and stress, the shivers I can't help, but I try not to give the nightmares my full attention. When I manage to ignore them, which is rarely, the gaps between their visits lengthen. Jai stopped. We had come to an ancient wall composed of massive red stones that must have once been the foundations of a fortress or a prison. He turned. His eyes were featureless silver orbs. I had not imagined their strangeness. He leveled a revolver at me. The weapon seemed prosaic given the circumstances. It was you then, after all, Jai said, his English suddenly dramatically improved. I admit I was surprised that he found out. I could not imagine how. As far as I was concerned, Jai was just one more stupid oriental cop who took backhanders like many of them from my boss. You killed him, he went on. Ah, the drowned man again, the courier. Mea culpa, I'm afraid. I did it, yes. First, I gutted him like a fish. Then I tipped him off the side of the boat I'd hired to meet him on the beach for the pickup. It had all been planned immaculately. What the courier was asking for on behalf of his clients was a huge sum of money. The fact that we didn't know the identity of his suppliers made us suspicious. But the boss, confronted by mortality, was prepared to try anything and pay any amount. His contacts had heard rumours of some substance that would cure his cancer, but warned him there would be a high price to pay. The boss thought in fiduciary terms. Cash is the compass by which he navigated, the love he prized most highly. Next to me, that is. But the word price has more than one meaning. 
you know the superior quality that seahorses have? Jai asked me. From the shadows behind him emerged a group of shapes that might have been men, but because of my feelings about the drowned man, would have preferred to be ordinary monsters. They are loyal to a fault, to their wives and their children. Seahorses are monogamous. Did you know that? No, I said abruptly, aware that the wind had ceased and that we appeared to be in a zone of silence, in a vacuum flask. The shapes that stepped forward were men, after all, all of them Asian, some Chinese, some Japanese. They all wore jeans. Some of them had on baseball caps or sported long manes of straggly hair. A few I recognized as members of the investigations crew on the hillside. Nothing extraordinary about them at all, except I imagine their loyalty to their gang lord or whoever was the source of the stolen substance. The men above had confirmed Jai's suspicions, of course, and his crew were waiting for me below to deliver justice in some ritualistic way that would balance the books. Our boss needed the stuff, also. He told me his daughter is dying with this material. He could save her. He paid well for it, but your hungry ghost Che Chi Fu was greedy. I said wearily, "How did you find out?" We have contacts. You remember Prince Ri in Tokyo, do you not? His people were also looking for you and know what you did. The rest they leave to us. Jai's beloved internet was nowhere near as convoluted, and inexplicable as these networks of criminals and mystics. It was the final arena in which the sacred and the profane operated in harmony. I nodded sadly. Jai's men. Stepping across the grid of concrete walkways beneath the rising tide, surrounded me and stood watching me with their arms folded. Jai said, "I did not know for sure until yesterday. I search in your room. You have hidden it well. You give us the drug, and we will let you live." I shrugged, feigning indifference. It's all gone. They let me sleep for a while, but then there was no more of it. I had to go through the motions, you see. I went on, feeling the need to explain, to expiate myself, and I was running out. I needed more. I needed to sleep. You got any idea what it's like not being able to sleep, having nightmares while you're awake? I know there's more of it somewhere, and I thought you might lead me to it. You were my last chance. You were supposed to find Chifu and the substance. Jai shook his head in disbelief. At first, I did not know what this was about. I thought more money for us, for our cause, saving the boss's daughter, and now this. I waited while Jai took a deep breath and craned back his head, as though studying the underside of the pier for divine inspiration. He went on. When I saw him drowned on the hill like that, I knew, knew the ghosts were at work, the other world. Things you do not understand, but that you bring into this world because of your poison spirit. Your sick spirit is a doorway which lets them through this world all the bad things. What are you talking about? I say, the cancer. Jai says you are injecting your boss's cancer into yourself, and you will not sleep until it claims you finally and tortures you to death because no drug will be able to stop the pain.
There's a reason for this, and you know what it is. I was sweating, aware of the weeds drawing back from me, slipping back into inertia. Jai was right. I do know the reason for this thing that is happening to me. It is the price that must be paid. What the price would have been for my boss, I have no idea. Provided he had obtained the drug, or whatever that damn grey powder was, through an honest transaction, perhaps it would only have been financial, albeit extremely high. But my disloyalty, my theft, brought with it the highest price of all. Jai, seemingly satisfied, looked around at the group of bandits, levelling his gaze at each pair of eyes, and making a slight nod to each in turn. Each then turned away and stepped back into the darkness. At last, Jai did the same, but not before saying to me, I do not think you are an evil man. Your spear is sick, that is all, and you are full of fear. Fear is not real. But you do not believe that, and so that is how you will end with fear. He stepped back, and the darkness closed around him. But this was not all, because a voice emerged from behind that black curtain. It was Jai's voice, and it said, Because of your fear, and because of what you must yet go through, I will be with you at the end. If I am to honor the other world and show it respect, I must also show pity. I will wait with you. In a world without sleep, the dreaming man is king. My hands tremble as I draw the ineffectual morphine into the syringe and inject it into myself, pretending it will let me sleep at last and release my emaciated body from the torture of the infinite, waking world. Jai enters and stands in the doorway, and whether he sees the drowned man at the end of my bed, I cannot say. Is it time? he asks. Christ, Jai, I say. I hope so. Please. Sweet dreams, then, he says. No more nightmares, Englishman. My bed waits for me, as it always has done, unrequitedly longing for me to fall into my long, blessed slumber. Thank you, John. We, uh, we can't seem to draw ourselves away from the biologically wet and icky, can we? Well, nothing really wrong with that, is there? And so long as you don't drink too much, your tummy should hold it all down. The Anatomy of Seahorses was told to us tonight by our second new voice, Jedediah Kalanu Shepler. Jed. Jed was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get a summa cum laude degree in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, 
and is a surfer, an artist, and a filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well and served as a rigger, greensman, propman, and stunt coordinator for various film projects. And he also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs, and says that he is not entirely sure that he is qualified to actually do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. The thing that tweaks my fancy looking at his bio is that among all those other things, Jed is also a competent flintnapper, a maker of stone tools, you know, like Neanderthal. And he is a knife-thrower. And the old mumbly-peg player in me just admires the hell out of people that can throw knives and make them stick. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he says he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can stop by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Currently, by the way, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston, and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. We look forward to hearing more from you, Jed. Ah, yes, well, we have survived another evening in the nook, haven't we? As you prep yourselves for the slog home, I want to send notice to all of you who are interested in science fiction at all. And if you have a block of time available on the 16th of June, that's a Sunday, uh, well, just stop by the Starship sofa and have a look at the rather spectacular offering being made right now. It involves authors Paul DeFilippo, Mike Resnick, and you, if so you choose it to be. Go, have a look. Are you ready? Well then, be off with you. Most likely will not keep you quite so long next week, but still, you don't mind, do you? Have yourselves a leisurely stroll home in the balmy, cloudy, too-warm-for-the-season night. Some of you might like that sort of thing. Enjoy the walk, because en route you'll doubtless be thinking of tonight's tales, and they will probably follow you up the stairs, down the hall, through the door, and into your rooms. And in the close and holy darkness you'll doubtless think of bed. The bed that waits for you, as it always does, unrequitedly longing for you to fall into it and into your long and blessed, pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.